Well, good morning. morning. Trying my best not to break this pretty decoration. Well, it is an honor and a privilege to get to open the Word of God with you today. Uh, If you didn't get to experience um, baptisms at the Brazos this week, it was just a wonderful time of celebration and fellowship. I'd like to thank uh, all the families and everybody who helped put it on. Also, Brandon came back from sabbatical uh, like on Monday and like on Monday afternoon, it was like, hey, dude, we got to figure this out. And he, he just hit the ground running. So I'm very thankful to him. Uh, this, this coming week, we, we have VBS. And if you haven't grown up in church, you may not have experienced this. But for those of us who have, you know, most, many of us either came to Christ during VBS that's where God planted a seed of the gospel. That there, there's something that God did there. And just be praying that the Lord does a work. It's, it's always a, a great time. And, you know, the, the volunteers don't start this week. They started, they've been working on VBS. So we're very grateful for them. But let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. God, I pray that you would allow us to see with your eyes, your kingdom open our eyes to the kingdom not being something that's coming, but has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be your royal ambassadors working in this world. Lord, open our eyes to the truth that we find in this text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in 1 Peter uh, verse 1, and our new series is entitled Living for What Lasts. And our our title for the sermon this morning is the elect exiles and that comes directly from our passage we'll look at that in a moment i just want to i want to prepare you for today today's not normal there's gonna we're introducing the book we're learning about the author who he's writing to what's the purpose when it was written there's going to be a lot of background so i just want you to be ready next week not all that stuff but you know so i'm new to the area and Waco, it, even China Spring just feels like somebody was like, all right, this is how I'm going to do roads. <laughs> and it took me a while to figure it out. But once, once we figured out 35, like, okay, then we can get to some places. Then six, like, all right, it doesn't matter how lost I am on the inside. As long as I can find six or 35, I'm okay, right? And then out here, like, who knew that Rock Creek was a major highway but it is. It connects everything. Once, it, once you figure out Rock Creek, you're okay. And that's what we're doing this morning. Well, we're, we're, we're setting the foundation. We're, we're, we're setting up these highways so that we understand where we're going, okay? So as we begin this series, my hope and prayer for each one of us is that we would see the world through the lens of the kingdom of God. I think many of us myself included, when we think about the kingdom of God, we, we think about the kingdom as something to come, not something that's here, something that's now. But if you listen to Jesus and how he speaks about the kingdom, he speaks about the kingdom as if the kingdom is a present reality, not just our eternal home. But I think many of us think about the kingdom of God like, you know, when we go on vacation or we're moving to a new home. The kingdom of God, we think about it as a destination to be arrived at instead of where we are now. 
And we are to live now as royal ambassadors of the kingdom of God, of which we participate. While we're not yet in heaven, our present reality, and I keep wanting, I want to say this over and over and over, our present reality is that we're citizens of the kingdom of God. And we are to carry out the will and the desire of our king. And let me tell you this about our king. Our king is a visionary. And he wants to see his kingdom expanded across every neighborhood, nation, empire, and tribe. And we are those who he's chosen to carry out that task. God's desire is to advance his kingdom by us making disciples where we live, where we work, and where we play. And when we do this discipleship work, the overflow of that will look like our church taking the gospel around the world. I was asked one time, how do you know when you've made a disciple? You know you make a disciple when that disciple makes a disciple. And for you, maybe you've never been discipled. Maybe for you, even if you're 80, it's time to get in a disciple relationship with somebody where they're pouring into you the word. Maybe for you, you've been discipled, but you know what? You just don't know where to get started. Who's your one is a great place where you just pick one person and you invest in them and you invite them to church and you invite them to Jesus. Well, maybe you don't know where to invite them in to Jesus, how to do that. Uh, in the coming weeks, all, all of our community groups are gonna start evangelism training and that's a good place for you to start. You know, it's kind of like uh, working out. You know, a lot of people don't work out because it's like, well, I don't look like that, so where do I even start? I can't, I can't do the, the whole gladiator run or whatever they're called, so I'm just, I'll just quit instead of just starting where you are. In the disciple-making movement, we're all called to it, and, you know, just start where you're at. Contribute where and how you can. I think the thing that keeps us from carrying out God's mission is that we stop living as exiles of a different kingdom, and we see this place as our home. And we start living for this world in this kingdom. We have to keep our eyes fixed on the kingdom of God. So what's true? God's desire is to expand his kingdom through his elect exiles. That's us. So what do we do with that? We are to carry out the mission and the calling of the king to advance his kingdom by making disciples at home and around the world. And I know that sounds like something ethereal, like, oh, I never could do that. That's a lie. You can. Every one of us can participate in this in our own way. So let's read our text. It's just two verses this morning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, and the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. All right. So first, we're going we're gonna to look at the author. See, we're going we're gonna to see who he is. Peter identifies himself as the author of the book, so we need to ask, what Peter? Well, Peter lets the reader know he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And 
Maybe you didn't ask good questions as a kid like I didn't. And I just grew up kind of thinking like Christ was Jesus's last name. But Jesus is not, uh, Christ isn't Jesus's last name. Christ is a title. The, the Hebrew word is Messiah. It means the anointed one. So when he identifies Jesus as the Christ. Every time he's, he's communicating an idea that this one from Genesis 3.15 that would one day crush the head of the serpent, that, that, that this Christ is, is the one who would fulfill the promise to Abraham, that this Christ is the one who would be a greater, uh, a greater prophet than Moses. As Moses said, there was one coming. This Christ would be he would be greater than David and reign on his throne forever. Uh, this Christ is the one that's identified in Isaiah as the one who was going to be God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God among us. This Messiah, this Christ, is to be the suffering servant. This Christ is the one who is to bring the kingdom of God to earth. So when you see this word Christ... Understand it's communicating an idea that this is the anointed one that the Old Testament is promising. This one that would give his life as a ransom for many. So Peter then clarifies exactly who he is. He's an apostle of, like Jesus was a common name, Jesus the Christ. Apostle means sent one, and Peter is identifying as one of these sent ones. And, you know, you see a lot of people nowadays claiming apostleship. That's fine, that's cool, but that's not what this means. There are 12 apostles. Could have been 13, but one traded on Jesus and committed suicide, so now there's 12. The apostles are those who Jesus, after his resurrection, called them and sent them to go and start his church. So technically, we're all sent by Jesus, but that's not what this is talking about. And then, so the 12th is in uh, Paul, and we see his call on the road to Damascus. So that's, that's what we're talking about. And there's only uh, one Peter who is an apostle, so that's narrowed from the wide, wide world of the ancient world down to this one guy that we've been introduced to in the four Gospels as well as Acts. So let's take a moment and create a sketch of this guy. We're not doing this every week. Just let you know, this is, this is this week, okay? Peter was one of the, the first disciples called by Jesus. And I think it's just really important to understand the perspective that he's writing from. He's not writing from a 21st century Western Texas conservative point of view. He's writing from a first century Eastern Jewish, both religiously and culturally Jewish perspective of a person who had seen the resurrected Jesus. That's the perspective he's writing from, not from ours. So let's, let's try to, to understand his background. Peter's occupation prior to being picked by this rabbi Jesus, because remember, Jesus culturally was also a rabbi. Like, we, we just kind of wash over that and just say, that means teacher. No, that was, that was a thing. And Jesus was a rabbi. Peter was a fisherman. And this lets us know something about Peter's background and his education based on the common Jewish practices of, of those people in that day. Like, for instance, Paul tells us about his education. Paul was the dude. 
Like he was smart. He got to go through like the, the equivalent of their PhD. He sat under the smartest uh, rabbis. He was the best of the best of, of those who thought they were the best. He claims to be better than them. So I guess Paul had some humility issues maybe, but like he's saying, I, I, I had it going on. I, I had the best education. Well, I identify a little bit more with Peter. Peter didn't have that. The general education of a Jewish child started around five years old. And everybody got in that, boys and girls. And they learned the Torah, which means the first five books of the Bible, as well as the song book, Psalms. So that's what they would learn. And when they would leave that, they would start their next level of education. And this was only for the boys and just some boys. Many of the boys would go back and work with their parents. And this is where they would learn the rest of the Old Testament, um, We'll call that the, 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 the written word. And they would begin this thing called the Mishnah, which means the oral law. So the, how, they, how you can think about the Mishnah is, imagine the five books here. They actually draw it this way. And the Mishnah is a fence that goes around it so that you would not in any way approach breaking one of the Ten Commandments. So the Jewish world held the, these oral traditions in as high of regard as the written law in many cases. So when you see Jesus show up and he says, hey, you've heard it said, and he quotes some Old Testament passage and then gives a very specific application, he's combating those hip, uh, the hypocrisies and the wrong teachings that all these young men would have already learned. So Jesus is doing something when he's like, You've heard it said not to commit adultery, but I say to you, don't. Like, that's, that's what he's doing. So uh, they, would have been, they would have been learning this oral law. And so generally, these, these guys would finish their education around 14 or 15, and they would, go, they would go and work whatever trade their daddy was doing. That's what they would do. And on the rarest of occasion, you got picked for the next level. And if you were an aspiring rabbi, you would go to a rabbi and you would be uh, quizzed. Not quizzed, but I guess quiz is a good way to say it. But you'd be tested to see how well you knew that written law, how well you knew that oral law, and just in general how smart and eloquent you were. And if you didn't stand ahead above the rest, you weren't chosen. But if you were chosen, you would hear these words from a rabbi, and y'all are all going to recognize this. This is, this is the, the proper way a rabbi would invite someone. They would say, follow me. The rabbi would then generally start his ministry 15 years later as a 30-year-old. And that means that during that 15-year period, that student went everywhere the rabbi went. He ate what the rabbi ate. He slept when the rabbi slept. He, he did what the rabbi did. It was a whole life, all-in commitment when you said, yes, to follow me. Well, Peter was from a small fishing village. We know that Peter's old enough to be married because we meet his mother-in-law later on. And he's much older than a normal pupil of a rabbi. Peter was working on his dad's boat, so that lets us know that Peter was passed over. He wasn't the best of the best. He didn't hear the call from his rabbi to follow me. Peter wasn't chosen. Then this rabbi Jesus shows up. 
he does his miracle off, off Peter's boat. And Peter hears this word from the rabbi, follow me. Peter understood what was being asked of him. That he would take this all-in, full-life commitment. Now, he didn't understand that Jesus was the Son of God. He didn't understand all that then. But what he did know is he was all-in. Peter followed Jesus for three years. And after Jesus' death and resurrection for the rest of his life. And, you know, Peter's one of these guys I connect well with just because he's full of faults. Like, Paul's hard to connect with. That dude's hardcore. But Peter, he's, he's full of faults. But he also, like, he fails often, but he loves Jesus dearly. Like, I, 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 I feel that. Peter's a guy who, you know, Jesus is walking on water, and once they figured out that it wasn't a ghost, he's like, hey, Jesus, me too? And Jesus said, come on out, and he walks out, the whole cool thing, and then he takes his eyes off and sinks, and Jesus has to save him. Uh, Peter's a guy, uh, there's three guys in Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Um, so Peter's in the inner circle of Jesus. Peter is the one who makes the confession at Caesarea of Philippi, that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Everybody got it wrong. Then he says, who do you say I am? And Peter's like, you're the Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus is like, Simon, Barjona, flesh and blood has not shown this to you, but this has come from on high. Simon, son of John, God showed you this. And he celebrates them and gives them the new name, Peter. And then like 20 seconds later, Jesus is like, hey, I'm gonna die. And... um you know, Peter's like, no, you're not. And Jesus went from going, hey, God showed you this to Satan showed you that. Um, he says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, he's, he's trying, but he's, he's full of good and bad. One moment he's being celebrated, the next moment he's being rebuked. Peter's the dude that when everybody's running in the garden, remember the Garden of Gethsemane, that these, these guys show up armed, ready to take Jesus. Everybody splits and runs. Peter takes the dude's ear off. And you need to know he wasn't aiming for the ear. Like he was ready to kill for this guy. But also, not long after that, a little girl asked him if he was one of Jesus' disciples. He was ready to take on an armed army, but a girl by the fire, he denied Jesus three times. Peter's the guy at Pentecost who preached and 5,000 people were baptized. He's also the head of the Jerusalem Council advocating for the gospel not only to go to the Jews but also to the Gentiles and that the Gentiles were actually saved just the same way the Jews were. But Peter's also Peter and he's a cultural Jew and later on we see Paul rebuking him in the, the letter to the Galatian church for falling back into this ethnic identity. And like, Peter's just a mixed bag. I love him. So church history goes on to record the way that he was martyred. Remember, in the last chapter of John, Jesus says, hey, you're going to die. And he's like, hey, why can't John die this way? He's like, no, it's going to be you. Um, <laughs> there's a competition the whole way through him and John. Like, I love... Like, you can tell that these are young men. So in John's gospel, uh, they talk about, so this, this lady goes and she sees the tombs empty. She comes back and the, the, these two are the ones who take off first. And John just happens to mention that he beat Peter. <laughs> like, 
But Peter was executed by King Nero, Emperor Nero. Non-biblical church history, which could be legend, claims that Peter, feeling unworthy to die like Jesus, requested to be executed upside down instead of like Jesus did. I don't know if that's legit or not. I mean, how often does an executioner be like, oh, that's how you want to die? So we'll we'll change what we were planning on. But he, he may have died upside down. That's what church history says. Theologians and historians believe that based on when Peter, when we believe Peter died, um, this letter to be written in 60 to 63 AD, so about 30 years after the death of Jesus. And why we believe that is there was coming a very um, hard persecution from Nero, but this this whole book's about suffering or one of the main themes and he's talking about how to endure that suffering but it seems like it's more like social and economic persecution instead of like the empire's coming to take your life so we believe it's written probably in between 60 and 63 this letter is to encourage believers to endure suffering while living as exiles in this world always striving to advance the kingdom of god um, because we know that all people will have to stand before their maker and be judged. So that's kind of the author, about the author. We got a general guess to when it was written. So now let's see who it was written to. Look at the screen. This is about the audience. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia Minor. Or, I'm sorry, and and my beard was scratching on this. I don't know if y'all could hear it. My bad. (laughs) Uh, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So, Peter identifies these people in in verse 1 as Christians in in the, maybe your translation says the diaspora or the dispersion, and that just means to the scattering Um, I think that these are primarily Jewish believers that he's writing to because, like, there's a whole lot of Old Testament stuff in this. Like, you have to really be up on your Old Testament to know what's going on here. So that makes me believe that it's probably Jews that he's writing to. And also that he's using the language of the prophets during the Babylonian exile. These people that Peter was writing to were the great, I believe, the great, great, great grandchildren of the Jews who were exported, they rebelled against God, they were exported from Jerusalem into the Babylonian Empire. Have you ever asked the question why Paul, yeah, we're talking about Paul, on his missionary journeys, like he can go anywhere in Asia Minor, why he can find a synagogue in all those places? Well, it's almost like God had a plan. So when the Jews rebelled in the Old Testament, God uh, sent one one series of persecutions through the Syrians, and then next he sent the Babylonians. And how the Babylonians did was they allowed you to keep your uh, ethnic identity. However, they didn't let you stay where you were. Because if you stayed where you were, you could make an uprising. And, but also if they moved you all together in like one colonization, uprising again. So what they did was they would just disperse people all over their empire because they didn't have Twitter or a cell phone, and it was not easy to come together and make a coup. So they allowed these people to set up homes as well as their places of worship, and that's what we call in the New Testament synagogues. They were living in exile, and P- 
Peter is writing to these Jewish converts to Christianity who are living now under the Roman Empire, not under the Babylonian Empire, because Babylon was a couple hundred years before. God tells them that he would one day reestablish them in Israel. This is talking about the Old Testament Jews, but in the meantime, they were to live where they were. God is telling us in the New Testament, and specifically in 1 Peter, that this place is not our home. New Jerusalem is our home. One day we'll be established there. But while we're here, we are to take up residency and, and live for our king. We are called elect exiles, if you look back at your passage. This word elect creates a lot of controversy. The, the word in Greek is a compound word. It's eklektios ek being out, and then the base of the other word is lego, and that means to call. So the word would literally render the called out ones. We could translate this way, to the called out exiles, or to the called out, maybe your translation says aliens or strangers. And what are these people called out to do? We are called out, because this is for all believers, we are called out to live for Christ in a lost and dying world. We are to be a light for Christ and live called out by Jesus. And if you're, you're in Christ and you've heard the call of the rabbi of follow me, you need to understand that call is a whole life all in call. It's a whole life all in commitment. I think many people identify as Christian when it's convenient. I think most would consider themselves, especially in our country, to be um, kind of a Christian. Kind of a Christian's not a thing. A lot of people identify as kind of a Christian, and if you're here this morning and you identify as kind of a Christian, I want you to understand that you are bound for hell. To be a Christian, to follow the rabbi, to follow this Christ, is a whole life, all-in commitment. Kind of a Christian means that you have the same understanding as the demons, that you know the gospel, but you refuse to live for the king. You don't get the kingdom of God without living for the king. How do you know that you're in Christ? Are you living for the king? These Christians that we find here, they're exiles. But while in exile, till God calls them home, they are to live for the king, knowing that where they're at is not their home. And they are to expand, not the empire of the Romans, but the empire of God, the kingdom of God. Look now at verse 2. And this is about the God of our salvation. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I love Peter's introduction. He introduces us with the Trinity. Because Trinity is foundational for this Christian walk that we have. And I don't expect us all to get mind around the Trinity. That's not the goal this morning. But what I want to do is start giving you some things that are building blocks for us to expand our understanding on what the Trinity is, why God reveals himself in this way. One of the ancient creeds written in 360 
Now, the church believed in the Trinity way before that, but we created this statement because somebody was walking around and he got a big following saying, hey, Jesus isn't God. So church, how we operate is we're a reactional people and they reacted to that and they came together and said, well, this is what we believe and they made a statement about it, okay? So this is, this is the statement of the, Athen- of the Athanasian Creed in 360 AD. It says, we worship God in Trinity, in Trinity and unity, neither confusing the person nor dividing the substance. We confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory and co-equal in majesty. The Trinity is a divine mystery that we're not going to totally understand, but that's how God has revealed himself in the New and Old Testament, and we are to accept him the way that he's revealed himself. And I I show you this to show you two things. First, I want you to understand that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are equal in glory, they are equal in deity, and they are co-equal in majesty, all having different roles. So, and I also want you to see, we're not saying anything new about the Trinity. We're not saying anything new about God by, by, by saying this. And you might be, well, 360 AD is a little late. Okay, well, let's, I hear you. Well, we got a lot of writings from early church fathers. Polycarp, um, he was one of John the Revelator's disciples. That guy, we've got writings of his. He's talking about um, the, the, the Trinity, not using the term Trinity, but uh, interchangeably the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as deity. Also, we've got, this guy's really cool. His name's um, Ignatius of Antioch. And if you go and read his sermons, very easily Googleable. That's a word, right? Googleable. So, and you can go see that he is, he was born like in 30 AD and lived to like 110 AD. So he's writing during the time that at least John is alive because John doesn't die until the late 80s. The church very, very, very early on believed these things about God. And you're like, okay, that's cool. But what about the New Testament? Let's go, what about Jesus? All over the Gospels, Jesus is laying Trinitarian doctrine. I mean, one of my favorite places he does that is John chapters 14 through 16. It's all over the place where he's claiming deity and where he's telling he's sending one after him, this, 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 this helper, the spirit, who's going to indwell us, God living inside of us. This is not new. This is not a different teaching. So we worship God as Trinity, and God reveals himself to us in the Bible as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes without division of nature, essence, or being. So that was a long way to get to the next part. Let's look at what the Father does. So the, the Father, he's the one with the foreknowledge, so the, the church of God is being uh, called out as exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So if you want to see Baptists get in a fist fight, talk about foreknowledge. But it's here, so we're going to deal with it. The Greek word, you'll, you'll, it, it'll sound like something you, you know. It's called prognosis. Gnosis means um, knowledge. The, the, that, that pro that you hear is a prefix, which means before or beforehand. So beforehand knowledge. That's, that's what we're talking about. People want to water down the foreknowledge of God because it makes them feel uncomfortable 
or maybe somebody they love, it makes them feel uncomfortable. But here's the deal. God is not concerned with how you feel about his, his attributes and his person. He's revealed himself in a way, and it is not helpful for us to try to make him more palatable to the world around us. Actually, that just adds confusion. So what are we talking about, this foreknowledge? Well, this foreknowledge is specifically pointing back to, in verse 1, the elect exiles. So if you put the ideas together, you'll find that these called out ones for salvation is part of God's divine foreknowledge. I know many people's minds are running and they're like, well, what about my will in this whole thing? The Bible teaches that we have volition, that we choose, that, that we are responsible for the choice that we make in following Jesus. But it also tells us about his divine foreknowledge. Where do these two things in his election meet? It does not tell us. We're to accept it as he's presented it. That is in his, like we talked about last week, his hidden will. And this is just something trippy. God is big. Would, would you affirm with me that everything is God created? Is there anything that is that he did not create? Time is a thing. It's a measurement. And if God were bound to time, that means God would be subjected to time. God is both in and outside of time. We see him interacting with people in the Old and New Testament. But also, he's looking at the end like he's in the moment, because he is. God is not bound to the constraints that we're bound to. God does not sit around and wonder how all these things will work out. So, just be comforted. This one that's inviting you to this kingdom work knows how it's going to end. That suffering that you the Bible tells, will endure, it's not surprising to him. And he's invited you to this with him. So the, the Father's plan is salvation. Now let's look at the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who is acting out God's, um, on, on God's elected exiles to bring about, the word here is sanctification. Now sanctification is one of these words that it's not the most helpful how we've done it. So remember, the history of the church, Latin, was the language of church for a long time. And sanctus is the word translated from the Greek here, holy, hagios, means holy. This word is holy. The process of being, becoming holy is what sanctification means. We've just taken the Latin and transliterated it into English. So this is a bad way to understand it, but a more helpful word for us would be, if it were a word, holification, the process of becoming holy. The Holy Spirit is the one acting in us and bringing about this thing. And this is one of these issues that it's an, it's an already and not yet. Like, once you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in and he seals you. You're stamped. You receive the actual righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Almighty. It's given. It's received. But I still got sin nature. Like, I'm, I'm still, like if you're around me, I'm going to get mad. I'm going to be long-winded. I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to fail. I'm full of flaws. Sin nature. 
and I won't be made perfect as Christ is perfect until I die. And the Holy Spirit's the one who is conforming us into the image of Christ. That's, that's what the Holy Spirit does. But we're also sealed. That's part of the Trinitarian work. So let's look at this last piece in verse 2 real quick. And we see that um, this is God's doing all this, verse 2, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. So we'll take that real quick in two parts. First, obedience. God has done all this. He's created this plan that his son would die for us and that his spirit would make us new and would be able to live for him for one purpose. Ezekiel 36 tells us when it talks about the new covenant, he will give us a new heart so that we would follow his statutes and follow the king. We have been saved, not for the sake of our own salvation, but we have been saved to glorify our king. There's not, there's no biblical category for being saved by Jesus and not following Jesus. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You don't get the kingdom of heaven without following the king of heaven. We don't get to reason away the things we don't like about God that he's commanded. We don't get to reason away the things we don't like about the king with quippy phrases like love is love or my body, my choice. I know what it's saying, but this is what it means. We follow the king. And Christian, don't get mad at the culture. Like, you are in exile here. This is not your home. This is not, if you want to affect the culture, go make disciples. You know, we want to, we want to uh, make discipleship easy by like, hey, tell you what, We'll, we'll make a change here in China Spring. We'll have a one-week revival. That'll change it, right? No. We're trying to fast-track God's work. How does Jesus do it? He doesn't preach a whole lot of big sermons. He takes 12 guys and he invests in one, and one had them killed. And the, the compounding effect of these men and this disciple-making movement turned into thousands and then millions. Think about this. If you were to take three people, just three. Jesus took three, right? He had 12, but Jesus, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John. If you take three and you invest in those three people for a year, and then those guys, you equip them to, to, to share the gospel and to make disciples, and, and those guys, each one of them take three. I'm not real good at math, but the compound effect will have just massive growth in just a couple of years. We look at the last 20 years and we see baptisms up and church attendance down. You can't microwave discipleship. That is not the way that God designed the church. He designed the church that we would expand the kingdom, we would advance his kingdom by making disciples. The last thing I want you to see is the sprinkling. Um, the, that's, that takes us to the mercy seat. We've talked a lot about the mercy seat. But the mercy seat and the altar of God, they're hinges in the Bible. 
So in the, in the altar of God, what would happen, that's where the, the Ten Commandments laid. And on top of the Ten Commandments was what we've talked about so far is this mercy seat. And mercy means not getting what you deserve. And if God were to judge the people of Israel based on their ability to keep that law, they're doomed. But once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come in and he would sprinkle blood all over the ark. And he would pour blood upon that mercy seat. And this sprinkling, that's, that's the, 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 it's, this language has taken us in the, the, the Holy of Holies to this act of the priest. But the blood of, boat, uh, of goats and bulls could never take away sin. That's why God sent his son to die. Jesus died on the cross, rose from the day, grave. And Hebrews gives a, lets us peer in to the Holy of Holies in the temple of God in the heavenly places. And Jesus comes in as both the great high priest and the sacrifice, and he sprinkles his blood on that mercy seat. And the Bible tells us that when he's done this, those who enter in by faith, that God will forgive their sin as far as the east is from the west. He will throw your sin into a place of forgetfulness. He calls it his sea of forgetfulness. And you can have that if you enter by faith. But if you enter by works, there is no salvation to be found. It's only by the finished work of Jesus Christ. So why are we elect exiles? to take this message around the world. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I'm gonna be standing right here and, and I would love to have this conversation with you on how you can believe and what does that mean and, and how you can be saved today because the Bible tells us today is the day of salvation. But as I told you earlier, our king, he's a visionary and his vision is to see his kingdom be expanded across every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And that starts first in your neighborhood with you making disciples. We've, we've, we've made the Great Commission so much less than what the Great Commission is. The Great Commission is not to go share Jesus. That's part of it. The Great Commission is to go, therefore, and make disciples, teaching all that I've commanded. And every one of us is called to it. And if you're here this morning and you've never been discipled, I would love to help get you into a discipleship relationship. But maybe you're here and you're like, I think I could do that. I guess just reading the Bible with somebody. But you're like, I don't, I don't know where to start. Well, who's your one is the opportunity. That's where you say, I'm going to pick one person. I'm going to pray for them and I'm going to invite them to church, or I'm going to invite them to Jesus. Maybe you're like, you know what? I'm not confident on how to do that. Well, Brandon's got an answer for you. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to start evangelism training. But it's starting where you're at. Let's pray.